You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hey, Northway family. Happy uh, Sunday to you. Happy 4th of July weekend. I'm glad you're online with us here. If you got a Bible this week, I'd love for you to turn with me to Psalm 73. We're in week seven of our summer in the Psalms. We're also in week number 5,040 of COVID, as it feels like. But nonetheless, the Lord has us in a great text this week that I think is gonna speak profoundly uh, to so many of us and where we find ourselves even in our current reality today. But Psalm 73, and uh, the word that I have for us this morning, it's a real big fancy word. It's the word juxtaposition. So say that with me. Say the word juxtaposition. That's fun to say, isn't it? Juxtaposition is a big fancy word that simply is a way of communicating when you have two facts of two different things that that are seen or placed together, but have a contrasting effect. It's kind of like an, an oxymoron, but different. It's like jumbo shrimp, but more than a metaphor, a juxtaposition is a way of understanding the contradictions in life that are all around us. Like give you an example of phrases we use. Sometimes we use the phrase like, when it rains, it pours. It's a juxtaposition. You go, well, which is it? Is it, is it raining or is it pouring? Well, it's, it's both happening at the same time, two realities. Uh, we also take Neil Armstrong's phrase, you know, one, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Well, which is it, Neil? Is it a small step? Is it a giant leap? Well, it's both. It's like a labradoodle. Is it a Labrador or is it a poodle? It's both. You even see it in restaurants, uh, fast foods these days that are combining all the time. It's like when you see a Long John Silver's and an A&W and you go, well, which is it? Is it Long John Silver's or A&W? Well, it's neither. It's nasty. That's what it is. But juxtapositions, they're everywhere. But maybe no greater juxtaposition do we experience in our faith as followers of Christ than the juxtaposition of knowing what we believe to be true in our minds and in our theology about the sovereign promises of God towards his people to deal with evil and to bring good to out his followers and that being juxtaposed against the reality of what we tend to see in the world around us where it appears to be evil's flourishing, wickedness is flourishing. And so which is it? Is it the sovereignty of God or, or is evil sovereign? And, and you see these two put together uh, at the same time. And that tension that we experience in our lives is the same one that a man by the name of Asaph experienced who wrote Psalm 73. Asaph is a Levite, part of the Levitical order. He was appointed by King David to be one of the three chief worship leaders of Israel, one of, the, one of the chief musicians of Israel. And specifically, and we learned from First and Second Chronicles that these musicians, they would play uh, songs and lead the worship in the temple while the sacrifices were being made at the temple. And Asaph, who will then write 12 Psalms in the Psalter in our Bibles, um, is, is the way that he writes, and if you've seen any of Asaph's Psalms, they're very relatable, they're very honest to the human experience. And maybe none greater than in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is where he is gonna lay before us his struggle with the juxtaposition of life between the sovereignty of God and the prosperity of evil. And so you're gonna, you're gonna see three big movements in this text. And so if you're a note taker, if you're an outliner, here's where we're going, here's the flow in verse one of Psalm 73, you're gonna see Asaph's expectation. 
This is what he knew to be true, what he expected to be true in life. And then in verses two through 15, it's gonna be juxtaposed against Asaph's experience. Even though this is what he knows to be true, this is what I see playing out day after day in the world around me. And then finally, in verses 16 through 28, we're gonna encounter Asaph's education. When God is going to help him understand how to make sense of this apparent contradiction that he sees around him. And so let's dive right in. Asaph's expectation, you see right there in verse one. Verse one sets up the problem that Asaph has. In verse one, Asaph says, truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, he is good to those who are pure in heart. This is the biblical expectation that Asaph has had since he was a kid, that he was taught by his parents, that he was taught in the lessons of God, that any of those who, who are God's children who pursue God, they will experience the goodness and the favor of God in their life. And Asaph says, while I know that to be true in my mind, while I know it to be true in my theology, it just doesn't seem to be working that way in my experience and reality. And you see that now in verses two and following, Asaph's experience that seems to counter his expectation. In verse two, Asaph says, as for me, my, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I mean, literally, the juxtaposition between what Asaph knew to be true in his theology and what he experienced in his reality, that apparent contradiction between God's favor and what seems to be his lack of justice um, going on in the world around him, this reality that we're gonna see literally almost caused him to slip and to stumble in his faith. It almost caused him to walk away from God that this contradiction was so real in his life. That ever happened to you, by the way? Where in your Christian life, you look around and you just see the wickedness seems to be prospering all around us. Maybe it's just the tragedy after tragedy after tragedy that you have experienced in your own life or into those lives of those who are closest to you. Maybe for some, it's the hypocrisy you've witnessed in the church. Whatever it may be, you've seen all of this and it just seems to run counter to what you feel like you've read in the scriptures that God says is to be true and bothers you, frustrates you to the point that you just wanna walk away. You just wanna go, there's gotta be a plan B that's greater than the plan A God has laid out. Maybe I need to go reconsider that. That's exactly where Asaph found himself. Now, what is it Asaph experienced? What is it that there was such a contradiction that made him wanna walk away from God at a season in his life? And what you're gonna see are really three things in the experience of Asaph. You're gonna see his observation of the peace of the wicked that they seem to have. He's gonna observe the pride of the wicked that he, they seem to have. And then he's also gonna then conclude in the juxtaposition of the godly. The peace of the wicked, the pride of the wicked, and the juxtaposition of the experience of the godly. And, and you see this experience played out. In verse three, we see the, the peace of the wicked, verse three and following. Asaph says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When, in other words, when Asaph looked around and he sees that those who are enjoying the quote unquote good life aren't the godly ones. It's the wicked who seem to appear to be enjoying that life. And 
and they seem to be the ones who are flourishing. And it's interesting, the word prosperity that Asaph uses in the Hebrew right here is actually the Hebrew term shalom. It's a word that means peace, means wholeness, means safety, means well-being. And it, it seems to Asaph that the promises of God, of his peace, his shalom for his people, it seems that it's actually being enjoyed by those who are not his people. And this is frustrating to him. And he notices, notice in verse four and five, how this continues. He, he says, for they seem to have no pangs until death. They, their bodies are, are fat and sleek. They are, they're not in trouble as others uh, seem to be. And they're, they're not as stricken like the rest of mankind seems to be. Uh, in other words, when I look around and I see the rebellion towards God that's around me, those folks seem to be healthy. They seem to be free of trial. They seem to have no burdens like the common man. They, they seem to be doing really, really well while everybody else is suffering. Now, don't misunderstand that. Asaph's not saying that they don't have hardships of any kind. Now, we've already seen even in our Theology of Suffering series in James chapter one, anybody, Christian or non, is gonna experience hardships in this life. The context of what Asaph's getting at here is that they don't seem to be experiencing the consequences of sin, as the Bible seems to say people who sin will experience. They don't seem to experience the justice of God that the Bible says will happen towards those who rebel against him. And he can't make sense of this since their life is going really well and they appear to be getting away with their sins, it seems, that the Bible says no man can get away with. Well, the next thing that he observes is that they then tend to take up the mantle of pride towards their sin and their rebellion. And you see that in verses six through 11, not only the peace of the wicked, but the pride of the wicked. Asaph, Asaph says in verse six, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. In other words, Asaph observes that when people aren't held accountable for their sin, when it appears that the justice doesn't come on their sin immediately, then what people begin to do is they double down on their sin. They feel they've gotten away with it. They, they feel justified in their sin. And so they begin to boast in their sin. They begin to mock God and they mock the followers of God who try to call them to repent and hold them to a higher standard. And because they feel there is no higher standard, then they can begin to now become their own standard and oppress those around them for their own self gain. That's what Asaph is speaking to here. As awful as it is, when God appears to be silent in this and the wicked begin to flourish, he notices the people around them start to jump on that same bandwagon. People begin to conclude, well, if, if God's not doing anything about it, then I think I'm gonna join them. And that's exactly what you see in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, his people turn back to them and they, know, they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Like God's not gonna do anything about this. So I guess I'm ditching God and I'm going with them. And Asaph, this is what literally is causing him to want to punt his faith. 
is to see how much flourishing is going on. So you've seen the peace of the wicked and the pride of the wicked. And now to top it off in verses 12 through 15, you see the the juxtaposition of the godly. He looks to his own experience, pitted against even what he sees in the world. And it only fuels it further. You see this in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, increasing in riches. Meanwhile, verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I'll speak this way. Oh man, I would have, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And in other words, I'm over here suffering for following God while the wicked and the rebels are flourishing. And so I'm doing all of this in vain. If, if, if I'm totally honest with myself right now, I feel like following God is in vain. That's what Asaph's confessing right here. Asaph, again, one of the head worship leaders of Israel. He's got a tremendous place of influence and platform amongst God's people. And he even confesses right here in this moment of self-pity. I was this close to just cursing God. I was this close to just publicly saying, I'm out, I'm going with them. And he says in a moment of conscience, the only reason I didn't is because I knew if I did that in my spot of leadership, there'd be an entire generation of God's children, of followers of God, who would use that as a license to go with me. And I just couldn't do it, so I kept my mouth shut. But the tension is real. I mean, does this sound familiar? Have you been in this spot? I know I have. I feel, even though this was written 3,000 years ago, I feel like this was just ripped out of my journal from last week. With the number of contradictions that I continue to see all around me in the world. Just last week, I had to bury a 33-year-old member of our church who leaves behind a young widow and a three and four-year-old daughters because of cancer that awful reality. Just this past week, I've sat in rooms with minority members of our church who have lamented in their own pain over the partiality that they have experienced in our culture and the silence of many of the churches, including aspects of ours, and just lamenting in that pain. Uh, Just this past week, I've seen parades and Supreme Court rulings that are upholding the very things that Jesus came to die on the cross for. And so in that moment, you throw on top of that, just all the the pressures of COVID and the the, the tensions that we're feeling as a church and as as a human humanity right now, it's these moments, we have a running joke in our office right now. We're quoting that line from Lloyd Christmas and Dumb and Dumber. We're like, and our pets' heads are falling off. It's just like, what more could be happening right now? And so it's like, how long, oh Lord, where are you? Why are you so silent? And am I following you in vain? This is, man, this is real talk from Asaph right here. This is Asaph bringing all of him to all of God. And if we're honest, surely we've been there at times as well. And maybe you're there right now. But yet here's the beauty that I want you to see. In his mercy, God has an even greater juxtaposition that he wants Asaph and as well as us to see. He, he, in order to try to make sense of this whole thing, he's gonna pull Asaph aside and begin to educate Asaph. We're gonna move from Asaph's experience in the world 
to now Asaph's education in God that helps us make sense of these contradictions. You see this starting in verse 16 and following. Asaph says, when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me like a wearisome task. In my own flesh, I just couldn't make sense of the contradictions around me until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, the fog of Asaph's envy and bitterness begins to lift when Asaph turns his eyes away from his circumstances and begins to lift his eyes to his sovereign savior. It's only when he walks into the sanctuary of God, which is literally the presence of God, that the clarity that he needs comes. And he begins to see and interpret from God's perspective rather than from man's what's going on around him. The same is with me. I mean, I just gotta confess, this little season we've been in, it's just created a lot of leadership fatigue in me. I mean, so many different scenarios going on all at one time that in many ways you feel like you were never really trained for and you begin to hit some serious despair. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I just confess, I got so buried in some of my social media feeds that I could not discern which way was north and which way was south. I couldn't figure out which way was up and which way was down when I was looking to the world as I've been doing so much in the recent weeks. And, and what Asaph is gonna teach us right here is that according to this Psalm, according to what Asaph's gonna learn, Asaph was misunderstanding the circumstances. It, it, or it wasn't that he was misunderstanding the circumstances, they were real. He was misunderstanding God. He, in, in the sanctuary of God's counsel, God begins to show Asaph some things that Asaph just couldn't see. And he's gonna begin uh, by showing him the future so that Asaph can really interpret the present and then therefore play the long game. So three things that God is going to educate uh, Asaph in, in verses 17 and following. You're gonna see the future of the wicked, the folly of comparison, and the fullness of the Lord. You see the future of the wicked. Asaph just gets brought into a little insight with God about, let me, let me tell you about how justice is gonna play out. Verses 17, he says this. Again, until I went into the sanctuary of God, it was only then that I discerned their end. Truly, you actually do set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself and you despise them as phantoms. In other words, uh, this, this is what God says. It might seem like the wicked are getting away with their sin right here. It might seem like that they're flourishing and like justice will never come, but no justice will come. It will come swiftly in the moment that it actually does come. Like he says, kind of like when you wake up from a nightmare and it seems so real. And then you have to rouse yourself to put down the phantoms. Phantoms here is literally forms or shadows of what appears to be real. He says, the wicked are going to be dealt with by God. They seem very real to you right now, but there's a day coming when God is going to wipe out those forms 
of those shadows that have, that, have, that have seemed to be flourishing so much against us in this life. There is the truth, Paul tells us in Acts 17.31, that God has indeed fixed a day of judgment. There is an appointed day when all sin will be judged. All forms of rebellion will be dealt with. Justice will come and it will come swiftly. Second Peter 3 speaks to why we don't see that justice all the time immediately right in front of us. And that is because our God is a God of patience. He's not wishing for any to perish, but that even the wicked amongst us would turn and repent. See, we want justice right now. And yes, and amen to that. We wanna see it laid down. But at the same time, a lot of us go, God, deal with that evil, smote them, like take them out right now. And God goes, okay, let's play it this way. If we dealt with evil, how about we start with you? And we go, no, I don't want, I don't want that. Deal with their evil, not mine. And, and that's what happens is we deceive ourselves by thinking that's evil and ours isn't. It's all evil, but God in his mercy is patient. And it is patience that led you and I to turn to faith that he didn't just incinerate us at the very first sin we committed. And the same is happening in the world around us. But know this, there is a day coming. Revelation 20 tells us that the great white throne judgment, God will allow his justice to pour down and he will deal with all rebellion. For those who turn to Jesus, our justice has been met fully and sufficiently at the cross. To those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, that's where our justice is met and it's already been paid. But to those who will not turn to Jesus, there is a day coming when they too will experience the justice of God. But it won't be on the cross, it'll be in the great right throne judgment with them being separated from God in hell for all eternity. But right now is the time to repent. And so in this, he confesses, he sees the future of the wicked. There is justice coming. And he also confesses here in verse 21 and 22, the folly of comparison that he's had in the meantime. He says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, listen to what's going on in Asaph's heart. He's bitter. When I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. I was so angry, so bitter. This is what the comparison game does, by the way. When you are juxtaposed between the sovereignty of God and the seemingly flourishment of evil, if you're not careful, you and I will allow our unmet expectations of justice to turn into envy and jealous of those who seem to be getting away with it and bitterness and anger towards God or even his church for not doing something about it. And that's a dark place, Asaph confesses. That's the folly of comparison, how foolish it is to assume that just because they're succeeding in this cultural moment, that God will not have the final word. Oh, he will, he will, he is not done yet. And instead, what, what, what God counsels now Asaph is that what he truly needs is not necessarily the expediting of God's justice, though we would like that, but what Asaph truly needs is the presence and the fullness of God's grace to sustain him in the meantime. And this is the last section here in verses 23 and following. He draws him to the fullness of the Lord. And don't miss this. This is what we need right now. In verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may feel may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph says, although the wickedness of the world around me seems to be succeeding right now, and I'm not quite sure how to make sense of it in the meantime, I do know that the Lord has got me. And I do know that he has not forsaken me. He, with his hand, he holds me, he guides me, and he will see me through this, all the way through to the day of his justice and into his presence, he will sustain me. And even when it seems I'm all alone in my experience and trusting and following God and everybody else seems to be rebelling, I have not lost him and he has not lost me, that I might confess, Asaph says, whom have I in heaven but you, O God. If everything else is lost, I've got you. What else do I need? You're the strength. You're the, the portion of my, my life forever. And even though my, my flesh and my heart may fail, even though cancer may come, even though I may lose my job, even though there's racial tension all around me, even though there is, my marriage may fall apart, even though I may lose my family, when everybody else seems to have theirs, you are my strength of my heart. You are my portion forever, Asaph confesses. Can I just ask you, church, can you say that? Can you can make that same confession? Can you confess that, that God is enough for you? That even if you never get anything else you're asking for, as long as you have God, that's enough. Asaph is saying right now, that until God and God alone is enough for you, understand nothing else ever will be. Church, understand the juxtaposition of life that Asaph puts in front of us in Psalm 73. God in his sovereignty has made promises that are for the good and the benefit of his children. And even though in the meantime right now, it seems like everything around us isn't playing to that end. The truth is you and I just can't see everything that God can see with our finite eyes. God is doing a trillion things in this world right now. And you and I are maybe aware of about three of them at any given time. But he will have the final word. Sin's penalty will be met with full and final justice. Certainly, if not in this life, the one to come. And so in the meantime, don't let circumstances be your portion. Let God be your portion and realize the hardships that you and I are walking through right now. It's not because God is unjust or has somehow forgotten about us, but rather because he is fitting us right now for something far superior than the pleasures of this world. See, the shalom that you and I are looking for cannot be bought or measured by the things of this world. It is only found in Jesus Christ and the sufficiency that he brings to us through his work on the cross. The lesson that Asaph learns right here, the paramount lesson for us is that our greatest good in this life is not found in the pleasures of this world as the wicked are seeking after and seem to be flourishing in. Our greatest good, and we have to believe this by faith, is actually found in the nearness of God in his presence. Jesus himself said this in Mark chapter eight, when he said, if you have the whole world and yet you don't have God, you actually walk away with nothing. But even if you lose the whole world, if all you have is God, you actually walk away with everything. If you find yourself embittered right now towards the world around you and the circumstances that we find ourselves in, can I just encourage you, the nourishment 
and the perspective that your soul needs right now is actually not gonna be found in your social media feeds, it's not gonna be found in the news, and it's not gonna be found in the physical circumstances of your life, but rather it's going to be found in the sanctuary of God's presence through the counsel of his word. Can I just encourage you, as I've had to encourage my soul this week, get away from it all for a little bit. Open up your Bible. Go drink deeply from the fountain of God's word commune with God in prayer. And I promise you that as we draw near into the presence of God, we will walk away concluding the same as Asaph did in verse 28, that his nearness is our good and he becomes our refuge in an upside down world. This is the juxtaposition of life. And God is the one who anchors us in the midst of it and holds out hope for the greater end. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in a very upside down world we're in right now, where literally we can't make sense right to the left of what's going on. God, you provide an anchor for us. You show us that the world, even though it appears to be one way in our minds, there is a greater reality behind the scenes going on. There is a sovereign, infinite God who is in control of all of this and is working this out in a way that we have to trust you in, that will ultimately bring forth your justice against those who rebel against you and will ultimately exalt and honor those who have drawn near to you, that will lead to your glory. Oh God, help us to trust in that. Help us in the meantime, not to run to the world, but to run to the very presence of yourself for your nearness to us is indeed our good. And I pray this for Northway Church, for all of us, for your glory, our good, in Jesus' name, amen.